Father, we thank you so much for today. We do pray that you would bless us as we turn our eyes to you, as we focus on what you have said in your word, even what your own son, Jesus Christ, has said to us. Lord, these things we take seriously, this, this moment even, as we think about gathering with the people of God and worship, in worship of all that you have done based upon what you've told us in your word, in worship based upon what you've commanded us to do in our lives. So, Lord, we pray today that you would bless us in our effort to worship you. Lord, for those of us who are believers, this means that we come to your word again, confessing our sin, repenting of it, turning more and more to you. And Lord, for those who are not believers, we know that this means turning to you for the first time and genuinely repenting of their sin and following your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we need, that your, we need your Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit to come and move in us, to change us. We need your truth to mold us, to will in us, and to work in us. We pray for that enabling, we pray for that moving, by the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I can't tell you how good it is to be back with you. My time away was challenging and fulfilling in many ways, but it is so good to be back home with my church family and be in this pulpit again. I got to preach one time while I was gone. Uh, it was at the second Baptist church ever in America in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and uh, that was uh, quite an experience, but it is great to be back here. Our privilege today is to study the Olivet Discourse. Why is it called the Olivet Discourse? Well, the discussion, the discourse, took place on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus' words here were so vital and so important, in fact, shocking to the disciples, that all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contain large summaries of the Olivet Discourse. And these two chapters, 24 and 25, contain for us this sermon, really, by Jesus Christ. Today, I want to read to you the entire chapter 24, though I'm just really giving an introduction to both chapters. Chapter 24 is the tougher of the two chapters. 25 is more or less Jesus' application. But I want you to feel the weight of what Jesus said. I want you to hear it with fresh ears, perhaps even imagine that you're hearing it for the first time. Maybe imagine that you're one of His disciples there, listening to Jesus speak as he talked about the fall of Jerusalem. And Jesus had that final verbal confrontation with the leaders of Israel up on the Temple Mount, and he comes down across the valley, begins to discuss with his disciples, and he gives them this, the Olivet Discourse. All right, let me read to you the entirety of chapter 24. It's a little bit long, but I think you can follow along. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of Your coming and the end of the age? 
Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear war of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. And they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place... Let's let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. If they say to you, look, He's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, look, He's in inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, so there are vultures. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Not only the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And two men will be in the field, and one will be taken up, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know one what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God. It goes without saying that many people are interested in the study of biblical prophecies, particularly end-time prophecies. It's a passion of many Christians from learned professors in the seminaries all the way down to the armchair theologians. Many Christians are very excited to study end times. The study of end times is known as eschatology. There are churches, there are pastors, there are whole ministries dedicated to eschatology, dedicated to deciphering Daniel and the book of Revelation and books like Ezekiel and Thessalonians and even the Olivet Discourse, Discourse here to find out what's going to happen in the end. I was told one time, a long time ago, as a young pastor, an older pastor came up to me and said, hey, you want your church to grow, don't you? I said, yes. He said, preach on Revelation. People show up for that. I think some of you even told me before I left, I can't wait when you come back because you're going to talk about end times. Why do we love end times so much? Why do we get excited about the end times? Well, I think there's several reasons. For one, I think there's a lot of people who are maybe a little fearful, maybe just curious, maybe a little bit of both, fearful curiosity, you could say. You may not have any idea what the blood moon is or the third scroll judgment is, or the battle of Armageddon is, but these things seem scary. They seem, well, quite honestly, apocalyptic, and so there's a little fear there. There's a little curiosity there. Want to know what happens. Want to be ready for what happens. And let me be clear. I don't think that's a bad motivation. I think we ought to be curious about what the Bible tells us. Everything in the Bible is God's Word. It's inspired. It's true. It is for us, all the church. It's not to be just sort of segregated or, or quarantined for those in the seminaries. It's all of us. All of us are to learn the Word of God. And so I think it's a good thing to have a little bit of fearful curiosity about the end times because the Bible teaches about the end times. Another reason I think some of us are interested in eschatology is maybe some of you are planners. You like to plan. You like to have everything lined up. You're the investor. You're the saver. You're the one who, uh, uh, who's who's worked out all the exigencies, what's going to happen, and I have this and I have that. You're, you're the person that every time you have an opportunity there in Costco, you grab the 20-year box of all the stuff, you put it up in your attic, you're ready. Again, maybe this could trend sinful, yeah, you could be a little bit arrogant, a little bit prideful, I'm ready, no one else is ready, but it also, I think, is in some ways good. It's a good attribute to be prepared. I mean, Jesus tells his disciples here, be ready, be prepared, don't be taken aback when I show up again. Finally, some people look to eschatology, I think just for assurance, right? We want to read the back of the book. We want to find out who wins. We want to find out with assurance that Jesus is going to be victorious in the end. We look at the crazy world today and we want to have some level of assurance that in the end it's all going to be okay, that, that ultimately justice will be served. 
that all the horrible things that happen in this world and there's no justice, in the end there will be justice. And we like to read about these things. Again, a great motivation to study end times and I think part of the reason that Jesus gives it to us. Well, whatever your motivation is, or maybe you're like John Calvin who avoided end time. You know, some people just avoid the subject altogether. John Calvin did this. If you have John Calvin's commentaries, you'll notice there's one missing, the book of Revelation. And he just didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to touch on it. It was too complicated. I don't think we ought to have that attitude because it's given to us. I mean, here it is. I think we ought to study it. But whatever your motivation is, or even if you have no motivation to study eschatology, here it is in front of us, and I hope we can benefit from it. As Jesus wanted, certainly wanted His disciples to benefit from it. And so we'll study this the next few weeks. Now, I want to come at this like the disciples did. And by that, I mean our, our first effort is not going to be set up to set up all the different views of end times and try to compare and contrast. I want to listen to this as best we can like the disciples did. I'm not going to give you all this stuff to go back to your family groups and have arguments. I want to give this to you so that you can be encouraged and experience like the disciples did. So we're just going to drink these words in and try to experience them as those disciples them, as Jesus spoke them way back then. It doesn't mean we're not going to look at other parts of the Bible and try to understand the truth here, but I just want to express, experience these truths in a fresh and undiluted way. So all that to say, I'm probably going to disappoint some of you. I'm not going to unfurl in week two a big chart behind me with a timeline. I actually saw that one time. A famous pastor at a huge, you know, mega church. He had this, you know, rather large stage, and he had a, a, a timeline behind him. And like a general, he was kind of a portly fella, and like a general, he's running around sweating and pointing at things, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. I'm not going to do that. Some of you want me to do that, but I'm not going to do that. We're just going to study what's in front of us here in the Olivet Discourse. And I hope that after this we'll be at a point of greater understanding, we'll be at a point of application, a point of great worship of our God. But I also hope that we won't believe ourselves to be experts in terms of eschatology. You know that every, just about every great cult starts with an end times expert. I don't want us to go down that road. So let's keep our heads screwed on tight. Use simple rules of communication. Try to understand these things as Jesus said them, and I think we'll all benefit greatly. From the top, this means a couple of things, just a couple of points of advice as we think through these things. Some of you, as you look at your Bible there and you see all these bolded, sometimes italicized paragraph headings, I want you to remember these are added. This is not something Matthew said or Jesus said. Those little paragraph titles in the ESV, you see that in 24 it says, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. Sometimes those are very helpful. Uh, I think sometimes they can mislead us a little bit. That's not Scripture. Another thought that I just want to help you remember as we go through this is to set aside your end times framework. That is not to say your framework is wrong. You might believe exactly what's right. But I just want to remind you the disciples did not have an eschatology or much of one. When they heard this, they just heard it fresh and they just drank it in. And that's what I want us to do. Again, that's not to say what you believe is wrong or to, uh, to sort of push you away from what you believe. I'm not doing that at all. I'm just saying 
maybe just read this with fresh eyes. Maybe listen to the words of Jesus and go through this with just fresh eyes, seeking understanding. And this will help us in our purpose of this study. In that respect, I do want to point something out. In these verses, there's 97 verses in 24 and 25. In these verses, there are only 12 verses that talk about specifically the end of times. Now, there are things, there are allusions. There's definitely something about what he talks about, what they're going to go through that is endemic even of our own age. But in terms of the very end of times, when Jesus addresses specifically his return, it's only 12 out of 97 verses. And there's application, like I said, there's application for us all throughout. There are things that they're going to go through, even in the destruction of the temple, that we need to see as even part and parcel to our own age. They're relevant to us. But again, just keep that in mind that in terms of end time specifically, there's only 12 verses that talk about specifically the return of Christ. All right, I want to give you a little context, and uh, then at the end of today, I'll give you the actual outline, the notes for today. But I want to begin by giving you a little context. Uh, uh, before we talk about how to look at this prophecy, I want to talk about just some context. If you go back in your memories, all the way back to the beginning, it was, I think it was 2018 that we started the book of Matthew. Uh, if you go all the way back to 2018, some of you were here, and uh, remember what we talked about then, Matthew is arranged, he arranged his gospel around five discourses. Uh, a discourse being Jesus taking an extended time to preach or to speak. And sometimes he did preach. In fact, the very first discourse was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, chapters 5 to 7. This was the first discourse. And of course, that first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, is, is really how his people are to operate inside the kingdom that he was building. Their ethic, their morals, their attitudes. And that's the first discourse. Then in chapter 10, we have some direct instruction to those people who had decided to, to follow him and become part of his kingdom. He has some direct instruction to those disciples. That's chapter 10. That's discourse number two. The third discourse, you'll remember, is the kingdom parables. It's the kingdom group of kingdom parables there in Matthew chapter 13. And this is really the nature of the kingdom. What's, what's the world, spiritually speaking, what's the world going to look like after Jesus came? That's Matthew 13. And then in chapter 18, the fourth discourse, this is really the nature of the church inside that greater idea of the kingdom. What does church look like? That's Matthew chapter 18. What's interesting to note is that each of these discourses are mostly aimed toward those people who are either coming in or are in the kingdom. And that's not to say Jesus didn't speak to outsiders and call people to repent and and be baptized and come into the kingdom. He, he told people this. This was his evangelistic, so to speak, message. He told them if they want to follow him, they're to deny themselves, take up their cross, and be willing to die and follow after him. But these major discourses, all of these major discourses, are aimed at those inside the kingdom, his followers, his disciples. So these discourses Matthew puts here, they're organized that he organizes his gospel around, these discourses are really not so much about calling the lost to salvation, though that's in there. It's mostly about training and guiding and giving us truth as believers. 
This is written initially for our spiritual ancestors. And so it's written for us, believers. This is sort of in a rudimentary way. This is instruction for the church. This is instruction for the people of God. Each one of these discourses give us great instruction as children of God. Kingdom character, they're in the Sermon on the Mount. Instruction to followers, that next one. Nature of the kingdom, nature of the church, all of this is aimed at the church. And this is true, not just of the first four, but also this, the fifth and final discourse. It is to his disciples, and you'll remember what it says early in that chapter, chapter 24. He speaks to his disciples, and then he is there with them privately. And I take that to mean it's just the twelve and Jesus. He's speaking to those twelve and instructing them. Look there at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. But his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Just pause right there, a little uh, digression. I don't think, it kind of sounds like in the ESV, it kind of sounds like they're explaining to him what the buildings were, to point out to him the temples, or the buildings in the temple. Uh, just to give you a visual of what's happening, they left the temple, they probably would have come out of the eastern gate, they would have gone down in the valley of Kidron, they would have come back up onto the Mount of Olives. Those of you who have been to Israel, a number of you have been to Israel, you've probably done this very thing. You go over to the Seven Arches Hotel or nearby, and you look down, because the Mount of Olives is higher than the Temple Mount, and you can look down and almost see a map of Jerusalem, old Jerusalem laid out before you. Today, there's a bunch of Muslim buildings, Islamic mosques that are on top of that 40-acre Temple Mount. But back then, there would have been the temple. There would have been the colonnades. There would have been different things related to the worship of Yahweh. On the corner of the Temple Mount would have been the, the palace Julia where, where Pontius Pilate lived, probably where Jesus would have been eventually in a few days after this would have been beaten in the dungeon. And, and they go up, and I don't think the disciples are instructing Jesus. Jesus had been going to the temple his entire life. Jesus knew what the buildings were. I think they're just pointing out the beauty. I think they're just saying, maybe this is beautiful. Look at the the, the temple, like, look at the smoke rising up. They would have been doing sacrifices on the altar. It's Passover week. The smoke would have been going up. It must have been a beautiful sight. Looking over the, the city of Jerusalem upon the temple, and maybe they're commenting about how, how beautiful it is. That makes sense of the next thing that happens. But, chapter, uh, verse 2, he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is pretty amazing to hear this. Jesus had, to, had alluded to it earlier, but to hear Jesus say it so bluntly, so clearly, the whole thing's going to be wiped off this, the top of this mountain, not one stone upon another. That was astonishing. Why? Because this was a magnificent temple. I've told you about it before. I've explained it to you before, but... The colonnade that was surrounded the edge of the Temple Mount, which was 40 acres, so 40 acres was surrounded by this colonnade that was about three or four stories high. The temple itself was bigger and more beautiful and more uh, 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 magnificent than even Solomon's temple. It was giant. It was huge. Herod had this 50-year plan that he carried out. Herod the Great, who had already died by this point, had carried out this plan of, of, of building up the whole Temple Mount. It was huge. It was massive. Tens of thousands of people all milling around, and for Jesus to say, this whole thing's going to be flattened, that's pretty shocking. Then he says, verse 3, he sits down on the Mount of Olives, disciples came to him privately, and again, I take that to mean it's just the twelve, just the twelve and Jesus. 
And they ask him, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? In other words, when will this all happen? When will this destruction and war happen? And when will it be over? When are you going to come up and fix it? Okay, we, we take it that the temple's going to be destroyed, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, but we're actually, we're looking forward to when you come back and rebuild. When's it going to be fixed? I think I would probably ask the same question. It just told me that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be wiped off the face of the earth. When are you going to come back and fix it? So, these two questions really give us the idea of the entirety of these two chapters, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is answering these questions. They're learning about the destruction of the temple, and this was scary for them. This was a daunting thought that the temple would be destroyed, and it sounds like how Jesus says it, they're going to be around for this. They're going to see this disaster. And this would have been scary for them. I'll never forget it. I was in high school, and as per usual, there were rising tensions in the Middle East. Out of the blue, seemingly out of the blue, the potentate of Iraq, unknown to all of us in America at that point, a guy named Saddam Hussein, decided he would invade one of our allies, a small country, again, a country we'd never heard of, Kuwait. For several months, I think it was five months, there were diplomatic efforts, and we all found out those, dip those diplomatic efforts, diplomacy had failed on Wednesday evening, January 16, 1991. The U.S. started an offensive with shock and awe. Remember that? Massive aerial bombardment. First time we were able to utilize our B-1 stealth bombers and our F-117s, and they're flying over in stealth. And you guys remember seeing that that night. I remember watching. It probably, wouldn't be, probably would have been daytime here, but where I lived in Oklahoma at the time, it was nighttime, and we're, we're watching all those tracers go up as the Iraqis tried to defend themselves against something they couldn't see, and all these, these fire were going up into the sky. The ensuing days, all those videos coming in live from Baghdad, reporters and helmets and flak jackets, and all that happened. Well, it, was, it started early morning in Baghdad, evening in, a, in mainland America, and my mother and sisters, we were getting in the car to go to church, we got in the car, and my mom broke down weeping. Why do you think she wept? Well, she had no idea how quick and easy that war was going to be. What does she remember? Vietnam. She thought of me. I was getting close to age 18. She thought about thousands of people dying. She thought about a quagmire and a divided country and death all around and all these horrible things. She could look back even further to the Korean conflict, not long before that. She looked back even further. She was born during World War II. She heard all the stories coming out of World War II. And so she knew the death and destruction of war. Now, the disciples, though they lived in that time of Pax Romana, the Roman peace, they probably knew something about war. And to hear about this, this would have been frightening. What Jesus says here is, is frankly, scary. 
Be, be careful. Be, pray that your wife isn't pregnant during this time. I mean, those are scary words. You're not going to even have time to go down into your house, grab what's yours, and leave. You're just going to have to run. These are scary things. The disciples were scared about this, and they asked Jesus, tell us, when's this going to be, and when's it going to be over? Well, Jesus' answer, again, makes up the content of these two chapters. Jesus answers three questions. First question is, when will these things, meaning the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? When will Jesus, when will you return? That's the second question that he answers. And then he answers a question they didn't ask. So what? How then should we live? In light of what's coming, in light of what Jesus said, how should we apply all these things? Now, once you wrap your mind around the fact that this is what Jesus is doing in the Olivet Discourse, he's answering these three questions. When will these things be? When will Jesus return? And so what? How do we apply these things? That really makes this chapter a little bit more simple, a little more, more understandable. So just kind of breaking it down for you, again, some of these passages overlap into our era. Even if Jesus is talking directly about the destruction of the temple, it certainly could be applied to the whole church age. It can be applied to even our days. It talks about wars and rumors of wars. Well, this is still going on, right? It talks about refugees and all these things happening and earthquakes. I mean, this is still happening. This is happening even in our day. So some of this overlaps in our day, though more specifically he's focused on the destruction of the temple. So verses 1 to 28, you don't have to write this down, but just to break it down for you, verses 1 to 28 of chapter 24, that's really the judgment on Israel. They had rejected their Savior. This is judgment on Israel, uh, destruction of the temple. That's sort of the first part. He talks about the return of Christ, the next three verses, 29 to 31. He goes back to the judgment of Israel, 32 to 35, Part 2 of Judgment on Israel. And then he goes back to the return of Christ, Part 2. There's 36 to 44. And then he jumps right into application. The end of chapter 24 is a word picture. And you heard me read it moments ago. It's the word picture of the householder. He's talking about readiness in terms of preparation. I'm sorry, readiness in terms of obedience. Then he gives another word picture, beginning of 25. The word picture of the ten virgin, ten virgins. Readiness in terms of preparation. The next word picture, the parable of the talents, readiness in terms of stewardship. And then he closes with the fourth word picture, the sheep and the goats, talking about readiness in terms of loving others. Now that gives you a little overview of where we're going, a trajectory. To wrap it up, I do want to make some application from some of the words that Jesus, said, Jesus mentions here. Uh, just some application of how we should go about reading this, studying it, thinking through it. And I hope this helps you not just in our study over the next several weeks of these two chapters, but also as you read prophecies in the Bible yourself, as you're at home by yourself and reading through Revelation or Daniel or something like that. What are some principles that you can put into your mind? And I draw these again from what Jesus says here and what we see here, but also other passages as well. How do we study prophecy? One piece of advice I would say is this. Number one, be content with some ignorance. I hasten to say, don't be an anti-intellectual. I mean, we're 
We're encouraged to know God. Paul, for all the churches he wrote to, he prays for knowledge and truth. He's, he's asking God to fill their minds with truth and knowledge. But I think when it comes to end times, we ought to have some level of contentment for the fact that we just don't know everything. Think, think about those, those people who listened to the prophecy of Daniel as he described that dream, right? The dream of this great statue. I mean, maybe vaguely they understood the basic meaning of it, these different kingdoms that would cycle through, and even a divided kingdom because it got down to the legs and he describes the legs, but there's no possible way that they could know which kingdom that was because some of those kingdoms didn't even exist. The, the Roman Empire was just becoming a Roman Republic when Daniel spoke those words, so there's no way they could understand the Roman Empire. They had to just be accepting of the fact that, well, we know this is some sort of kingdom, something happens here, but we don't know what. It's so important for us as we read this not to sort of push our own reality onto the text. It's important for us, I believe, to embrace some level of ignorance and just say, this is just the way it is. You, you can't look at these things and, oh, I know Magog and Gog. Well, that's China and Russia, and they're fighting Ukraine, which, of course, is this. And America, you'll see America here soon. Red flags ought to go up when you start hearing that language. You notice even Jesus says this. Look down at verse 36 of chapter 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. The three levels here. He says, no one knows. No person knows. Like I said, most cults start with an end times expert. I was, um, when I was engaged to my wife, I lived in Indianapolis, went to seminary down in Louisville, Kentucky, and I carried three jobs because I wanted to take her to Paris, and I wanted to make as much money as I could. And so I was planning a church. That was one job. Another job was when I was down in Louisville going to seminary. In the evenings, I would go work for a suit shop, a men's suit shop, and I would measure guys for suits. And then uh, when I was on the weekends planning the church, I would sell at the Sam's Club, I would sell ADT home security systems. And uh, I had one of those booths. They still have them today in Costco, at Sunrun, or whatever it is. You, there's a booth, sort of an outside vendor that's allowed to be in there. And I, and I was doing that, and we would have different vendors come up, and we would, I would talk to the other vendors. And uh, one day, there was a curious vendor because he came up. He didn't really have a product. He and his wife were there, and they were setting out brownies. They were selling brownies. I thought, how is this legal? setting out brownies, and then they had a stack of books that they were giving out. And so I struck up a conversation with him. His name was Jonathan Wallace. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm a missionary to Zimbabwe. Well, I, I was a missionary in Zimbabwe. Oh, man, well, to Zimbabwe, this is great, you know. And I began to talk to him, and he began to explain to me that God had been giving his wife a series of visions that by the year 2000, America would be destroyed. And that God was going to set up shop in Zimbabwe, and that would be God's country. And so they're going as a sort of forward, an advanced team to begin setting up God's kingdom in Zimbabwe. And uh, they gave me a book. I think I, I've saved that, but it's somewhere in my library. I think I saved it just for uh, uh, giggles, just to see <laughs> what this guy, what this lady said. Um, obviously, those things didn't come true. 
And uh, a few years later, I was watching the news there in Indianapolis, or a year later, I was watching the, the news there in Indianapolis, and um, uh, Jonathan Wallace was in the news for smuggling arms between Zambia and Zimbabwe. So, needs to say, my, my red flags went off when they start to have these very specific ideations and thoughts about what God is going to do specifically with this country or that country. I think there's a level of ignorance that we need to, as being a part of this no one knows, we're part of that group, we need to just embrace that and be happy with that. There are things that will not be clear fulfillments. We know it, sort of vaguely what it's happening, it's a nation or it's something, but we may, may not be clear of who it is and exactly how it's going to happen, certainly not when it's going to happen. No one knows there's a level of ignorance that we ought to embrace. He even says, Jesus adds, not even angels, not the angels of heaven. You think about all the beings that God created, these angels would be privy to His great plans, the timing. I mean, these are in some ways His warriors that fight against the other spiritual forces. Not so, Jesus says, not even these magnificent angels know. And then surprisingly, Jesus says, even He doesn't know. Now, this reminds us of what happened in the incarnation when Jesus became, when the Son of God became man. It's not that Jesus became less than divine or that He was not deity at that moment, but He had to set aside some of the aspects of His deity, His omnipresence and clearly His omniscience. And Jesus is God, but He had to set those things aside to become a human because humans are not omnipresent and they're not omniscient. And Jesus had to go through the birth canal. He had to grow and learn. He had to do ex and experience all that we experience as humans. And it even tells us that in Luke chapter 2. He grew in, in his mind and in his stature. His body grew and he, he learned these things. So he had to set aside, though he still owned them and they were rightfully his, he had to set them aside in order for him to be incarnated as a human being. And this reminds us that while Jesus was on earth, he was not expressing all the full aspect of his deity. So even Jesus was content while on earth to be ignorant in this area. He told the disciples many times, we heard this in Acts chapter 1, it's not for you to know the day and the hour. There are things we must, as we go through this study, there are things that we're going to come across. We can understand the basic truth. We can understand the broad truth. We can capture it in our hearts. We can worship God with that truth. And in terms of precision, we're going to have to be content with a level of Ignorance. I read to you earlier at the beginning of the service from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. You ought to be content with that, that level of ignorance. The good thing is the Bible is nevertheless clear. We can still know and obey the main thing. That brings me to point number two. Number two, maintain focus on the main point. Someone said about the Bible, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Interesting, in that very passage of Deuteronomy, Moses said, yes, the secret things belong to God, but God's Word can be known by us and our children. So plain, even children can get it. That's the primary reason why I don't want to get bogged down in trying to decipher every little thing, because there's a main point I don't want to miss. There are, there, there's a truth here. I don't want to pass up by getting bogged down with trying to decipher prophecies. I want us to keep our eyes fixed on what is the big point. I was reading a sermon this week, and the preacher 
pointed his audience to a, a book. I believe it, the author's name was Archer. And this author said, when it comes to end times, we've got to be careful to walk down the middle of the road and not fall into ditches on either side in terms of interpretation or hermeneutics. That's the technical name for interpretation. He said, on one side of the road is the danger of hermeneutical anarchy. You, know, you don't have to know that phrase. Interpretation anarchy. You guys are all familiar with this. You go to a family group. And you open up the Bible and someone reads this and someone says, well, I think this prophecy is fulfilled with the nation of Ukraine. What's happening in Ukraine right now? Someone says, no, 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 that's not Ukraine. That's definitely America. Someone says, no, that's certainly Russia. Before you know it, there's anarchy. And finally, someone has a good sense to say, any prayer requests? Why don't we close this up? <laughs> that's called hermeneutical anarchy. The opposite danger is the danger of hermeneutical tyranny. This is the person or position that's presented as though it is perfection, and if you disagree with it, you're probably going to hell or maybe just going to a warmer place of heaven. Usually, this position is prefaced by saying, well, if you take the Bible seriously or if you take a literal interpretation of the Bible, the problem with that is that person probably does take something symbolically from the Bible. When David says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after God, you don't walk away saying, David had heart disease. No, you say, okay, there's some symbol in the Bible. We need to understand it as symbol. Nobody takes everything in a literal way. The genre determines how we should take it. The fact that God-fearing, Bible-believing, conservative Christians differ on end times should tell us maybe we ought to be a little humble Maybe we ought not fall into hermeneutical tyranny. If R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and Derek Thomas and Al Mohler all differ on this, but they agree on the main point, maybe we should focus on the main point more than we focus on all the little nuances. Now, this makes the passage easy to apply, which brings me to the final principle. Always seek application for transformation. This is exactly what Jesus does here. Before he gets to the end of chapter 24, he's already starting to apply this to their hearts, and then all of 25 is nothing but application. Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Back to that verse in Deuteronomy, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. It's not about deciphering code. Not about unraveling mystery, not about one-upping people who may not know all the nuances. It's about finding the main truth and obeying it. And Jesus here says, essentially, as he gets to the end of 24, gentlemen, based on the fact that soon in your lifetime there will be war, there will be destruction, you're probably going to die. Here's how to live. Isn't that good? We need that, don't we? There's little doubt, folks. We live in a dark, strange, scary day. And we'd be fools if we plunged the depths of the nuances of interpretation and eschatology and never simply ask the question, how then should we live? What a question for all of us as we think of 
our own stewardship, our love, our joy, our perseverance. These times are tough. For some of you, you're rightly thinking, how do I get my life right with God? I don't want the end to come and me not be right with God. Well, you look to Jesus. You look to what He did on the cross. You believe in that and you follow after Christ. All of us apply it by trying to pursue Christ, to enhance our faith, to continue in our repentance that God granted us at salvation. And by so doing, we will all find joy. Well, as we anticipate this very practical study over the next few weeks, let's ask that God would keep us, guide our hearts and our minds and our lives. Father, we thank you so much for today. We pray that your spirit would be with us as we seek to know you and obey you. We pray, dear God, that you would give us a desire as we come to the Lord's table here in a moment. You give us a desire to focus on these main things. And even this very act, the Lord's table, this very act helps keep us grounded in the truth of Christ and Him crucified. I pray, dear God, that you would bless us as we remember Christ. Thinking of even those words that Jesus said, you're going to do this in remembrance of me, you do it until the return of Christ. So this takes us all the way up to the point of the return of your Son to this world. Lord, what a great way for us to keep our focus on the truth of Christ. Help us do this in the name of Jesus, we pray. 